Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The parties are divided in terms of the effect that the stimulus is going to have. This inflation debate has really been heating up the effect of what the Biden administration is spending on political capital. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. A group of centrists are the key senators to watch. Joe Biden, his number one focus in addition to the COVID health crisis is jobs. I don't think we have red roads and blue roads, and that's the way we're looking at this. Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Let's talk about taxes and the economy. And we've got an all-star panel to join us, including Congressman Andy Barr, Republican from Kentucky's 6th Congressional District. And we check in with Senator Tina Smith as well about the latest on infrastructure. And they're talking about taxes. Everyone's talking about taxes. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I'm accompanied uh, none, by none other, excuse me, than our Bloomberg Politics contributor, Rick Davis. Rick, let me clear my throat there. Sorry about that. And we are joined by Congressman Andy Barr, of uh, a Republican from Kentucky, uh, 6th Congressional District. Congressman, thanks for joining us. I, I want to play for you some sound on the economy from Bharat Ramamurti. He's the Deputy Director of the National Economic Council, and he spoke with my friend, my mentor, Tom Keene, earlier today on Bloomberg Surveillance about the corporate tax rate and how President Biden wants a higher corporate taxes and relief for families that earn $110,000 uh, for their families. Take a listen to the sound on this, Congressman, and then I want to I want to get your response. A teacher and uh, a nurse who collectively make, you know, $110,000 uh, deserve relief. And what we've seen in the data is that families with that kind of profile uh, have suffered. I mean, it's important to remember that, according to uh, the latest data, you know, one in seven American families reported going hungry uh, during the pandemic. Uh, there's a lot of need, and it's very widespread need. So, Congressman Andy Barr, should there be higher corporate taxes? Is that going to help the U.S. economy? Kevin, thanks for having me on, and absolutely not. Uh, your guest uh, obviously is right that middle-income Americans and two-income-earning families do need and deserve tax relief. They need economic opportunity. But reversing the successful tax cuts from a few years ago would not help middle-income families. In fact, what we saw as a result of the Trump tax cuts was basically a raise for most middle-income Americans in the form of higher pay uh, and in the form of economic growth that led to, to raises. And, uh, and of course, uh, those tax cuts also reduced uh, the income taxes for those individuals. But I would just uh, argue strenuously that increasing the corporate tax rate, uh, making American businesses and employers less competitive is not a recipe for higher wages or salaries for middle-income Americans. And if you really look at the details of what President Biden 
his administration and Democrats in Congress are proposing, it's not just to raise the corporate income tax, which would be very negative for workers, but uh, it's also to not repeal some of the pay-fors that were included in tax reform, and that would be uh, even more punitive on employers and result in uh, a more difficult situation for workers in terms of their upward mobility. Well, look, I think communication is key here, and this is a, a, a somewhat difficult question to ask, but let me ask it. Last week I had Senator Elizabeth Warren on uh, the program, and she is proposing paying for a lot of these types of policies and infrastructure, for example, by taxing billionaires, by t- raising uh, taxes on the ultra-wealthy. You know, are, are you in? I take it you're not in favor with that. So, how do you raise this money? It seems that Democrats are saying let's raise taxes. Okay, if if, if you can't raise the money through raising taxes, how are you going to do it? it, it it's really not a surprise that after uh, spending a massive <laughs> 1.9 trillion dollars and now, astonishingly, proposing even more spending, uh, that now uh, there's an epiphany among Democrats. Oh, we need to raise taxes and. And they like to talk about uh, raising taxes only on the wealthy. But even if you uh, taxed uh, the wealthy 100 percent, it wouldn't even come close to paying for this massive spending spree um, and, and a spending spree that less than 10 percent of it actually went to COVID response. It's really more of a, a fiscally reckless liberal wish list. Look, what, what I think we need to do in this country is exercise some spending restraint and allow the American taxpayer to keep more of what they earn. And, um, and, 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 and when the Democrats talk about raising taxes only on the wealthy, um, first of all, uh, you know, that's more of a, a, a comment about punishing success. But, but more to the point, uh, middle-income families better watch their wallet because they're not going to be able to pay for all of the spending just by raising taxes on the wealthy or corporations. Middle-income Americans, mark my words, middle-income Americans are in the crosshairs uh, of, of this uh, Democrat Congress and this Democrat administration. Hi, this is Rick Davis. Thank you for being on the program today, Congressman. I wanted to ask you, too, about uh, Janet Yellen's uh, conversations with other countries about potentially trying to find a um, um, some, some kind of a compromise on corporate uh, taxes. Uh, have you had any chance to, to get some sense as to what the administration seems to be trying to do to raise corporate taxes? Well, again, I don't know why anybody would want to make American businesses, American corporations less globally competitive. What we were able to accomplish several years ago with tax cuts was to finally make the United States somewhat competitive in a very uh, globally competitive uh, tax uh, environment. And uh, this would just punish American businesses. And, you know, we want to see uh, repatriation. We want to see uh, businesses come back to the United States, invest in the United States. What we don't want to do is discourage uh, companies from uh, locating in the United States. Uh, so, again, it's, it's about global competitiveness. And when we talk about raising taxes on corporations, you know, someone has to pay that bill. It's it's not like um, it's not like uh, corporations pay it and, and it doesn't impact American workers, American people. Um, the American people will pay for it in terms of a less dynamic economy, lower wages, um, less return on their investment, and um, and it, and what's really disturbing is it's not just about raising corporate taxes. They're also talking about raising income taxes. Uh, they're talking about a financial transaction tax, which would be terrible for capital formation and a huge drag on, on economic growth. 
uh, and other taxes like raising uh, the capital gains tax. So, uh, you know, at a time when we've had this economic crisis, the last thing we want to do is to punish success and economic activity. You know, it, it's funny because uh, while we do the show, I think our executive producer, Christine Barada, knows this about me. I'm, I'm texting sources. I'm trying to get things going on. And, and Senator Kevin Kramer's office, the Republican from North Dakota, just uh, confirmed that he'll be on our program tomorrow. So I booked Kevin Kramer for tomorrow. But you and he, am I doing the right grammar, Craig? You and he just did the uh, introduced legislation in the um, in the in the last week. Senator Kramer introduced the act. Fair Access to Banking Acts, uh, and you've introduced that in the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, th- the nerd in me knows that this was something that the previous administration uh, tried to get into law last uh, in the Trump years, but they ultimately couldn't. But this would codify the Fair Access Rule uh, issued by former acting controller of the currency, Brian Brooks, in January that requires banks to provide fair access to bank services, capital, and credit. And this is tied to the energy world, which I know has uh, uh, direct ties uh, to, to your congressional district. So explain to me in layman's terms uh, what precisely this is and why you want this into law, especially at a time when there's a new energy policy uh, with the Biden years. Well, you've heard of cancel culture, especially in the context of social media. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've, we've heard a lot about cancel culture these, these, uh, <laughs> these days. Go ahead. Well, what we're talking about here is cancel culture in finance. And when I say that, I mean that lending decisions should not be dependent on whether a business is is in conforming uh, is in conformity with uh, the politically correct standards of the day. Uh, lending lending decisions should be based on objective risk based underwriting standards and the creditworthiness of borrowers, regardless of. Uh, whether or not that business is uh, in the good graces of certain woke politicians. Uh, I do not believe, and Senator Kramer does not believe, that regulators should harass or uh, intimidate banks or other lenders from uh, extending credit to certain businesses that those politicians or regulators don't happen to like, such as fossil energy businesses or money services businesses, or maybe firearms manufacturers. This And this is exactly what's happening under the Biden administration, an announced and stated policy of politicizing the allocation of capital. And I think that should scare everyone, because once, um, once banks and lenders can be uh, uh, intimidated into cutting off, choking off financing uh, for one group, they can be uh, cajoled into cutting off financing to another group. And we should not be in the business of picking winners and losers in the actual marketplace. We've seen the picking of winners and losers in the marketplace of ideas. This is cancel culture in finance. But do you think that you're actually going to be able to get Democrats to support this? I mean, this is respectfully a long shot given the, the current makeup of Congress. You know, I would hope that uh, liberals or anyone of any political persuasion would recognize the terrible precedent this, set, this sets to, to allow um, uh, financial regulation to be used as a weapon against a political target. And, you know, there are businesses that may have uh, unpopular political status with conservatives uh, that could very well be uh, the target of uh, uh, cancel culture in the opposite direction. So, look, what we think 
uh, banking should be about is uh, non-discrimination, that lending decisions should be based on objective criteria of creditworthiness, and it should and banks should not be in the business of, uh, and certainly financial regulators should not be in the business of picking winners and losers in the marketplace. Uh, that should be left up to consumers. Consumers should choose whether or not a particular product or service is, is worthy of their support. Congressman, this is Rick Davis. Uh, in the press, there's been a, a lot of attention on the recent surge of migrant children coming across the border, and the administration seems to be contemplating whether they're going to raise uh, refugee caps. Uh, what, what's your sense of the situation, and why is it that the Biden administration seems to want to try to downplay this current crisis? Well, I think it's because it's a crisis of their own making. I mean, uh, if you look at just the, the, the raw numbers in terms of where we were before with a very different uh, policy in place versus the open borders policy that we see now, we see a real dramatic difference in terms of apprehensions and illegal border crossings. Back in January of 2020, there was only about 36,000 apprehensions. Uh, and yet in February of 2021, after the, the, the radical shift in policy from the Biden administration, we're seeing over 100,000 uh, apprehensions. And the estimate is that um, something of the range of 3,500 to 4,500 illegal border crossings every single day as a result of the Biden administration's change in policies. And what are those changes? They, number one, they halted construction of the, of the border uh, barriers, the border wall. They re-implemented uh, the Obama-era catch-and-release policy. They uh, attempted to institute a 100-day deportation pause that was enjoined by a federal court. And then, of course, in the one9 trillion dollar stimulus check uh, or stimulus um, bill. There were um, uh, stimulus checks made available for illegal immigrants, which was, of course, a magnet for more illegal border crossings, not to mention the fact that the Biden administration canceled the asylum agreements with Central American countries, which was the remain in Mexico policy. The, the result has been that this new policy is a magnet for illegal border crossings, and it's a humanitarian crisis right now. Several of my colleagues went to the southern border in El Paso. Uh, Texas migrant facility is now at 729% capacity. Um, many of these uh, unaccompanied children are victims of mm -hmm. human trafficking and sexual exploitation. And the Biden administration won't even admit it's a crisis. You know, the o Obama uh, Homeland Security Department said, uh, former Secretary Jay Johnson said that um, – said that um, yeah. one-fourth of these border crossings was a crisis, and the, the Biden administration won't even admit it, and yet they're directing FEMA to assist in a government-wide effort. Well, by definition, when FEMA gets involved, it's a disaster. So we need to, we need to rethink uh, these open border policies. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, uh, Congressman, for, for uh, joining us on a host of all of these different issues, and again, on that new uh, financial services bill and energy bill, really, that you introduced uh, earlier. That's Congressman Andy Barr, of, uh, a Republican from Kentucky's 6th Congressional. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. District. Let's just reset here. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We're joined now uh, by not only Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis, but also Senator Tina Smith. She is a Democrat from uh, Minnesota. And and you, Senator, thank you for being here. Uh, earlier today, uh, you... Uh, called out some Democratic opposition, or I'm sorry, some Republican opposition uh, to uh, Deb Holland's nomination. I was really struck by this. You said that the biases drove Republican opposition to Congresswoman Deb Holland of New Mexico's confirmation as the 54th Secretary of the Interior and that Republican colleagues are holding women of color to a different standard, an argument that you are going to make uh, that you have made. Um, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to, to, to tell us more about, about, uh, about that Huffington Post report uh, that, that was released yesterday. Well, thank you, Kevin, and it's great to be with you. Um, yesterday, the Senate confirmed uh, Deb Holland. It was a historic uh, confirmation to be the first uh, Native woman to lead the Department of Interior. There is so much historic resonance to this. Yeah. And so I was really proud yesterday to stand, with, stand and support her her nomination. And I also took the opportunity to point out how uh, Representative Holland and I believe other women of color who have come before the Senate have been held to a just a different standard in terms of what they're in, in the in, in terms of the way that they have been treated by some of my Republican colleagues. And, you know, I, I told the story, for example, of how, you know, she was called radical and extreme, even though there were other members of the Biden administration, excellent candidates who've gone through the process and escaped that kind of uh, you know, ferocious opposition that uh, Representative Holland um, uh, experienced. And uh, I told a story about how when she was going through her nomination confirmation hearing, I was getting messages from all over the country from uh, women and especially Native women saying they were just horrified by the way she was being yelled at and condescended to. And I think that it just reveals that um, even still today, um, women and especially women of color are treated differently and held to a different standard. And we need to name that. In addition to that, so much of the conversation this week from from my reporting uh, has been on what comes after the stimulus. And I know that you have obviously Mm -hmm. played a crucial role uh, in the stimulus negotiations. President Biden has been he was in my hometown today of Delaware County, Pennsylvania, uh, touting the impacts of the stimulus bill. But now we're talking about infrastructure in particular. You've got an energy bill as well. What Give us just your, the legislative calendar, so to speak, uh, just so folks can, can understand where the conversation is headed uh, coming from the nation's capital in the next couple of months. Well, I think in the next couple of months, there's going to be a big, robust, and I hope bipartisan conversation about how we need to invest in our infrastructure for me and many others, a key part of that investment needs to be investing in our clean energy future. And that's where my clean electricity standard bill comes in. It creates a pathway for getting us to net zero carbon emissions in the electricity sector, section, um, sector, pardon me, um, uh, 
you know, by the middle of the century, if not sooner. And it is a very important step towards changing the incentives and also really putting us in a position to lead on a clean electricity standard. One of the things that is so powerful about this is, one, it's very popular. People like it. It's also not one size fits all. It allows every utility, wherever they are, to decide what technology is going to work best for them. And it is... um, uh, gets us to where we need to go. I'm excited about the possibilities of moving forward with this, and uh, it, I believe it's going to take us, you know, a few months to get it squared away and get it uh, get it worked on. And it's not going to be easy, but I think it's going to be really important. Rick, jump in here. I know you have a follow up on this. Yeah, I'm very curious because uh, we know clean energy standards by state laws have been very successful in uh, promoting right. renewable energy. And so, what did you see as the 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 need for a federal standard, and how do you see it working with these state standards that already exist? Well, you make a great point. Nearly a third of Americans already get their electricity. Um, from states where there is already they're already on a clear path to a zero emissions energy, um, but of course that leaves the rest of the country that we need to bring along. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about this, and it gets to your question of why is it important to have a national standard, is that you know I hear from uti- from the large investor-owned utilities that they think that it's a good idea. I'm not saying they endorse my idea, you know, hook, line, and sinker, but they think it's important that we have clear market signals so they know what kinds of capital allocation decisions and capital investment decisions they need to make over the next uh, 30 years or so. And a clean electricity standard um, would, would, would give that to them. Just uh, to switch gears for a second um, on the uh, infrastructure piece of legislation uh, and 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 the timing of that. Do you have mm-hmm. any guidance from President Biden on when uh, we might have a robust pieces of legislation on infrastructure? Is it is it going to have to wait till the end of the summer? Is it in the fall? When when do you think we'll we'll get the, to that debate? Well, I can't speak for the administration, but mm-hmm. I can tell you that I know the Biden Harris administration is working hard on this right now. We're having lots of conversations, um, behind, you know, kind of. Uh, preliminary conversations about what this needs to look like. I think that they are rightly right now also focused on uh, making sure that America understands all of the great things that are included in the um, American Rescue Plan. Um, but meanwhile, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, conversations happening. So I don't. I, it's hard for me to say. Maybe we can expect something, um, you know, more public in the next month or so. But you know, that's for them to say. All right, we're going to have to. Uh have to leave it there. Senator Tina Smith, thank you so much for uh, for coming on to talk with us. Also a member of the Senate Banking Committee. So you, usually when I interview Senator Smith, it's about some wonky financial services piece of legislation. So it's nice to be able to talk to you about some of these other topics. Thank you, Senator Smith. All right. And uh, just to reset here, Rick, I mean, it's interesting right then and there, you got two influencers in, from the nation's uh, Congress, you know, a, a prominent Republican House member, uh, uh, a prominent Democratic senator. And it's interesting to, again, just assess the, the land, for lack of a better word, in the post-stimulus economy. Yeah. And the post-stimulus 
politics halls of Congress is what I wanted to say. Yeah, while the president's out, you know, uh, in your hometown, Delco, talking about his success. I pay attention. (laughs) And and he's talking about the success he's had with the stimulus bill, which absolutely will go down in history as one of the biggest spenders in, in, in American history. The the, it seems there's a lot of question as to what's coming next. You know, is it going to be taxes? Is it going to be an infrastructure bill? Is it going to be something, you know, that uh, is tied to things like sanctions? Because we also, it's totally unrelated to any of this stuff, there's a whole world going on out there. And and it and, and sounds like Biden administration may be starting to get tougher on Russia and China. There's and so, definitely a whole world out there. And coming up, we're going to talk about uh, about the, the China portion of that. But go ahead, I interrupted you. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, I think that, the question is going to be, what is next and is it going to be successful? If you've got a revenue raiser like what seems to be being broadcast right now, uh, it's going to meet with incredible resistance in the Senate. Uh, you might be able to get it out of a House, even though you have slim margins. Uh, even some moderate Democrats aren't looking forward to you know, voting for a tax increase. Uh, but you need you know, four or $500 million for a manufacturing bill that you know the administration wants. You need $300 billion for a uh, research and development uh, bill that uh, goes up as a part of the infrastructure bill. So it, it's where are you going to come up with this cash? Uh, and I don't think there's going to be support in Congress, mm. certainly not amongst Republicans, for yeah. going into more debt. It's funny. I have, you know, as a reporter, you have to have sources everywhere. Well, my sources were my family back home today as they were giving me live updates on the location of President Biden's whereabouts. I'm Kevin Cirilli with Rick Davis. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. Brandon Neal joins the all-star policy panel with Rick Davis. Brandon's the former political director for the DNC, and we're talking China. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Our producer, Matthew Shirley, making me laugh in the break. Uh, Rick Davis is with us. He's Bloomberg Politics uh, contributor. And Brandon Neal joins us. He is the former political director for the DNC and the former deputy chief of staff and political advisor to Congresswoman Karen Bass. He is also the former senior advisor to Pete Buttigieg's presidential uh, campaign. Brandon, welcome to the All-Star Policy Panel. I want to talk geopolitics. I love talking geopolitics. It's my favorite subject. Um, and China. I want to talk China because I've got sound on the state of affairs between the U.S. and China from Secretary of State Tony Blinken. And so uh, Tony Blinken, uh, Secretary Blinken, uh, made his overseas debut, not virtually, in real life. Uh, with a four-day trip to Japan and Korea for high-level meetings uh, with their respective counterparts and the so-called 2 plus 2 talks in Tokyo um, uh, while he was meeting with Tokyo counter... Uh, while he was meeting with his Japanese counterparts in Tokyo. Focus, Kevin. Uh, he fired a warning shot uh, against China. Take a listen to the sound on this. Here he is. We're united uh, in the vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific region where countries follow the rules, cooperate whenever they can, and resolve their differences peacefully. 
And in particular, we will push back if necessary when China uses coercion or aggression to get its way. It was interesting to hear him also address uh, democracy and human rights, uh, which he says are under threat in the Indo-Pacific region. Here's the sound on that. In Burma, the military is attempting to overturn the results of a democratic election and is brutally repressing peaceful protesters. And China uses coercion and aggression to systematically erode autonomy in Hong Kong. Brandon Neal in in many ways, this feels almost like a return to normal of the types of international and geopolitical representation that I think Americans were used to pre-Trump, um, right, wrong, or indifferent on the global stage. Would you agree with that? Agreed. I think that this is a signal to show that America is back. And I think that it's also set in a tone in terms of the relationship of what a Biden administration uh, will set and will be as it relates to our allies across the world. Rick Davis, it, you know, uh, and having covered both administrations now, uh, it, it was the type of tone that I think set former Secretary Pompeo would carry, but the occupant of the Oval Office, in that case, former President Trump, it felt like it was a, it was the complete opposite coming from the from President Trump in terms of how he would uh, negotiate or communicate on geopolitical affairs. It now feels like uh, the uh, the commander in chief and the the nation's top dip, uh, diplomat are speaking in the same tone and from the same playbook. Would you agree? Rick? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, now I can hear oh. you. Go ahead. Yeah, I think it's very clear, uh, uh, Kevin, that uh, this administration is looking for the ability to speak with one voice as a nation, not just as an individual, either president or the national security advisor or the secretary of defense or the secretary of state. And so I think that you'll see a much more orchestrated and formal foreign policy. But I do think one thing is really abundantly clear to start of this administration is they are also pursuing a multilateral approach to foreign policy. Mm. Uh, Donald Trump loved mano a mano, right? He was all about me versus, you know, President Xi. He was all about him and Putin. And I think that what this administration is trying to do is to assemble the allies back into the U.S. influence and use the power of that multiplier effect to then try and change the dynamic that right now exists, which is that China sort of gotten the drop on us, especially in the Indo-Pak region. From your perspective, Rick, what will be the first test of that? There's been this unfortunate resurgence in the zeitgeist of the geopolitical policy uh, makers in Washington of the prospects of some type of conflict uh, with China and the United States, maybe in Taiwan, for example, uh, or maybe it's an economic, uh, even colder war than than what has been happening uh, in recent months. What do you think is next in terms of the calendar of a potential uh, hot point between the U.S. and China? Yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, there are actual flashpoints like Taiwan and the South China Sea that could become uh, uh, a sort of uh, uh, deathly uh, conflict. But I think it's more likely that it comes out of this series of uh, issues that have been articulated by Secretary Blinken uh, on his trip out there, and that includes uh, the human rights agenda. Uh, there's no question that the Biden administration has taken a different approach to China than Donald Trump did on human rights. And, and so you can imagine there being a series of sanctions and, 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 and things like that around the human rights record 
of China. Two, climate. There is no question in my mind that at some point in time, either as a carrot or a stick, that this Biden administration is going to use climate as a way to juxtapose the U.S. aggressive approach under his administration and the inability of China to be able to move on climate. Miranda, do you agree with that? How, do, how, does, how does President Biden do that when domestically there's so much divide over solutions to climate um, uh, with uh, Democrats and Republicans quickly? So I think he's going to have to continue to reassure um, that we are uh, working together, especially like on the international order, whether politically, economically, militarily, and technologically as well, too, in terms of some of the previous challenges that occurred under this last administration and to show how we have committed to do better and we will do better. Um, one of the other issues, obviously, that on a national scale now, of course, we're talking about is immigration. Restoring order mm-hmm. and humanity, right? And so with that, well, let's talk. You know, let's very- talk about immigration coming up because we have to leave it right there for now. I apologize for jumping in, but let's talk more about immigration with Brandon and Rick coming up next. I'm Kevin Cerilli. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Steeple and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Steeple's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Steeple last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for the Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio Accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Brandon Neal, Democratic Insider. Rick, this hour's flying by. Yeah, this has been a really interesting group of uh, discussions and, and panelists, and uh, uh, I agree. There's so much on the agenda right now, it's uh, hard to take the ones that uh, that come right at you. You know, and we got Maroofs on the boards and Sarah Livesey running the boards and, you know, they're orchestrating it. We had to blow the break. We had such great guests. You know, it's a whole team effort. It is a team effort, as they say in the biz. Brandon, I had to interrupt you last time because of the jump, but let, let's reset with some uh, immigration because I, I want to go back to, to immigration. And Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, he commented today on the increase of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border, with many of them children, and they are not accompanied by a parent or guardian. The administration is shying away from calling it a crisis. However, um, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro uh, Mayorkas told ABC's Good Morning America that they are trying to rebuild the immigration process and that it's just not a good time to try to come to the border now. But he did say that the border is secure. Take a listen to the sound on the border from Secretary Mayorkas. Here he is. The border is secure. 
the United States Border Patrol secures the border on behalf of the American people. That's what we do, and we are doing it. Give us the time to rebuild a system that was entirely dismantled in the prior administration, and we have, in fact, begun to rebuild that system. Well, Senator John Kennedy, a Republican from Louisiana, had a very different interpretation of the situation down there uh, on the border. Take a listen to the sound on immigration from Senator Kennedy. The border was secure. And what's happened in the last six weeks? People are flooding across the border. And the administration is responsible for that. But they also have the tools to stop it. I want to really cut through the partisan rhetoric on immigration. I know that it is a very polarizing topic, but the bottom line is that lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, Brandon, have not been able to address the immigration crisis in at least over a decade. I think that's a kind estimate. Is there an opportunity, and if so, how, for there to be uh, immigration reform, even if it's only targeted immigration reform? Sure. Well, first of all, it's always a pleasure to be on with you and Rick. And so, again, thank you guys for having me on. You know, the president ran on restoring order and humanity to the immigration system. And I think it's very important that we remember that. On day one, he ended his policy for forcing asylum seekers to wait in Mexico. He ended uh, entry bans for family separations. I mean, he's been very committed to making sure we keep families together. You know, I think this is, unfortunately, an opportunity for... Uh, those on the other side of the aisle to use this as a point to deflect from the passage of the American Rescue Plan and calling it a crisis that Biden caused. Uh, it is not a crisis that Biden caused. Obviously, there's something that uh, we inherited under the last president. But this president, President Biden, has been committed since day one. He ran uh, on, on, on the platform of making uh, prioritize, prioritizing smart, smarter border controls uh, making families together. So I think we will continue to see improvement on reforms. I think uh, he, he sent uh, to Congress uh, a part of the U.S. Citizen Act, a plan to reform the long-broken and chaotic immigration system. So I think he showed his, his commitment uh, when running, and I think he'll continue to show his commitment with improving the system as well. Rick? You know, it's interesting, Kevin, that... Um that, that we're still talking about immigration. You know, every presidency in the last almost 15 years has had some kind of impact or lack of impact on the uh, border crisis. And here we are after all that time with many, many different comprehensive immigration reform proposals. We're, we're still finding an administration who, you know, the press secretary said today on Air Force One that we're working on proposals. And, uh, and yet you have, uh, according to what Secretary Marcus said today, uh, the largest number of individuals on the southwest border in 20 years. So, you know, I don't know how you define a crisis, but it's wow. a big problem, right? I mean, and, how do you know? It's a, you know, it's a crisis for those 3,000 teenagers who are going to have to be in the Dallas Convention Center and their families, that whether, wherever their families are, are located. I mean, I think we in the media have just, you know, made the word crisis such a trigger for both sides of the aisle in terms of uh, whether or not it leads, you know, those cable shows or, or, or the blogs and whatnot. I mean, it's a crisis. I mean, you can yeah. have multiple crises. The minute crises you have FEMA and, 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 yeah. show up, it's yeah. a crisis. They only and, go to crises. And you know what? Even if it's a crisis for just one family, 
it's still a crisis. Uh, I, I want to move on uh, to something that is very much on my radar. I feel like we're taking it back old school to OG sound on days uh, where we used to do what's on uh what's on the radar. But this is, I think, a, a brewing issue on the geopolitical space. And that is, what is the United States going to do with the leftover vaccines? I know, I know, we don't all have our vaccines yet. and and But the, the reality is that uh, the United States is leading per capita in terms of more Americans uh, who have been able to get uh, the vaccines. And where is the increase going to go to? The United States, as well as other Western allies, has criticized the Communist Party of China for vaccine di or diplomacy or mask diplomacy, as they call it, in terms of providing PPE to uh, countries that can't afford it and, and using uh, those types of supplies uh, to, to somehow gain favor uh, for themselves. Well, now what's the United States going to do in terms of uh, helping other countries? And how will the United States play a role in helping other less fortunate countries from an economic standpoint uh, with these leftover supplies? Well, we have sound on this from President Biden. He was asked about this earlier today on the South Lawn of the White House um, about sharing excess vaccines with other nations. And he says no decision has been made yet. Take a listen to the sound on excess COVID vaccines. Here he is. I've been talking with several countries already. Well, I'll let you know that very shortly. Rick, I mean, this is an opportunity for the United States, similarly to former President Bush and what he did with PEPFAR and helping uh, Africa uh, with AIDS and HIV. Yeah, Kevin, that's such a good point. I mean, look at that diplomacy that President Bush did where he poured billions in aid and technical support and drugs to Africa uh, under the PEPFAR program. And he is a legend in Africa now. This is how you build bridges. And, and, and hopefully uh, the Biden administration will learn from that experience. And, and we're clearly going to have uh, excess vaccines. When you do the simple math, <laughs> we're buying them in 100 million clips and we just don't simply have that many people. And so I hope the administration is able to show some uh, leadership uh, in especially places that, as you point out, can't afford it themselves. I mean, Brazil. Yeah, well, Brazil's getting a lot of vaccines from uh, China. China. And so, like, where are we going, right? And so, mm -hmm. hopefully, there is a, a little bit of a, a street competition, you know, where we actually go out and say, you know, we're, we're, you, you don't have to be an ally. You don't have to be, you know, a, a, a nation that can pay for these things. We're going to do it because we think it's the best thing for the people of the world. Brandon Neal, come in here and offer your geopolitical expertise. So I think we've got to, as Americans, lead by example. With uh, over 535,000 Americans who have died, but we have close to 30 million cases, we've got to uh, make sure we have everyone here in this country as well vaccinated and encourage people to get their shots. I know this administration is encouraged to get uh, 100 million shots in the first 100 days. I think we should just encourage, we should lead by example, and then we can also continue to talk about what's next outside of the U.S., but we've got to make sure we're unified as a whole up front. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that in addition to former President George W. Bush and his work on PEPFAR, Bono was also one of the driving forces That's back right. in that era. Bono, you know, he's my all-time favorite musician. Did you, Here's a fun fact. I met him once at a, <laughs> it was a Politico event. Well, no, I was working for Politico at the time, and there was some event that Jen Psaki actually was at. That was the first time I ever met Jen. And we were at the same table, and I was going off on some tangent embarrassing myself about, like, turkey legs and chicken wings and how I like that. And then Bono walks <laughs> in, and next thing I know, I, like, Got to shake hands with Bono. Never enough time you get to spend with Bono. Fun fact, he wanted to be a reporter before he wanted to be a rock star. 
I Thank God to be a rock he stuck star. with rock star. <laughs> well, I wanted to be a rock star, and I ended up a journalist. That's all I'm going to say. It's Women's History Month, and here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in women's history in 2004, Shirley Muldowney is inducted into the International Drag Racing Hall of Fame. By her mid-teens, she had developed a near obsession for speed, competition, and winning. Muldowney started as a street racer and became a pioneer drag racing legend. In 1965, she was the first woman to receive a license to drive a top-fuel dragster from the National Hot Rod Association. More firsts during her 40-year career included being the first woman to win a national NHRA event and the first of any gender to win three NHRA World Championships. Known as the First Lady of Drag Racing, Muldowney won a total of 18 NHRA titles, setting various track and speed records and dominating multiple events. That's Today in Women's History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. Rick, if my uh, if I if I just went with Kev, you know how Bono has or Kevo, like Kevo's Ke- the man. Not not Kevin Cirilli, just Kev. I'd buy Kevo. that record. I'm Kevo, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio with Rick Davis. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> what could you do if your data was working for you, and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.